Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Braddon. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. No Cousin Shane, once again, still on vacation. So I reached out to first-time guest on the show, Gerard Hamilton from Power Mizzou. Going to talk some Missouri Tigers football in just a minute. It was a fun conversation with Gerard Pretty informative, and all of a sudden we've got uh, quite the quarterback competition going on down there in Mizzou. So we'll get to that in just a minute. I wanted to really had some time to kind of go over the schedules for the upcoming season for the first time. Looking at all 14, I've got at least one observation for each and every SEC team next season. But before that, you know, it was a good time to have Gerard on the show. Did not mean for this to happen, but caused a little bit of a firestorm like I tend to do here on the social medias when I was asked Tuesday morning, better program. There's an Arkansas fan asking me, Arkansas, Missouri, who has the better program? And I didn't even realize the stir it would cause. I mean, everybody thinks their program's the best. I get it. But I said Missouri, drink. He's got a better SEC record than Sam Pittman. He's 2-1 and one against Sam Pittman head-to-head. And I get it. Some Arkansas fans, they want to look at all-time. I tell, When I think of a program, and I think this is how everyone should look at it, you're more or less looking at the current coaching staff because that's what's attracting recruits to your school. Are players flocking to Auburn right now because of Brian Harson, of course, or Gus Malzahn, or Tommy Tubber? No, they don't care about that. They care about who's there now. What have you done for me lately? Why is Tennessee so hot? Because they got an innovative offense and they're winning at, at an incredible pace on Rocky Top. Georgia, kings of the college football world, because Kirby and his staff have unlocked the potential of that school. Nick Saban, the greatest of all time at Alabama. You can go on and on down the list. Dan Mullen was quite accomplished at Florida, but they're not going to Florida to play for Dan Mullen. They're going for Billy Napier and his vision for what that Gator program can be. So maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but when you ask me who's a better program, I'm basically evaluating the current program, the current coaching staff, what they have done at that institution. But I have other numbers here to back it up. Like I said, uh, Pittman does have a better overall record at Arkansas than Eli at Missouri. Close one, though. Sam Pittman 19-17, and while Drink is 17-19. and The difference there, really, Sam Pittman's winning them bowl games and Eli ain't doing it. So that'll hurt you. But since... Joining the SEC, Missouri and Arkansas, head-to-head, they've gone to, against each other nine times. Missouri leads it 7-2. to two. The last 10 seasons, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not big into looking at all this data and historical and how many claimed conference championships you got, how, much, how many claimed national champions, because no one cares. No one cares what you did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when we're talking today, who's got the better program, but... I'll give you the last 10 years because that is relevant. Again, 
I don't know. This is not exactly how I would judge it, but Missouri, the last 10 years, 70 and 56 overall. Arkansas, 52 and 71. So basically flip flopped. Last 10 years in the SEC, Missouri, 39 and 43, just under 500. Arkansas in the SEC, 21 61. So a massive advantage to Missouri when you're talking. SEC records and division championships just in the SEC. I don't, I don't care what they did in the other leagues because I didn't watch them. And again, this, that was long ago. Arkansas does have the edge. They've won the SEC West three different times. Missouri's only won the East twice. But I would say the last time Arkansas won the West, 2006. Last time Missouri won the East, 2014. So kind of splitting hairs there. But one thing is made abundantly clear, and I've been saying this for a while, and people don't want to get on board with it. They might as well get on board with it, though. Arkansas and Missouri is a rivalry. And it has been. And, hey, both the coaches say it's a rivalry, so that – you know, adding some clout to that. But uh, maybe if Arkansas took this a little bit more seriously, like a rivalry, maybe they'd swing some of these games back in their direction. So I just wanted to get that out there. I'm sure everyone agrees with that. Real quick, uh, just a couple news and notes before we get to the schedule talk, before we get to our interview with Gerard Hamilton of Power Mizzou. Alabama official now looking for an offensive coordinator in addition to a defensive coordinator because Bill O'Brien has accepted the offensive coordinator position with the New England Patriots as expected. And I've already made this clear about a week ago. We did a little video. I'll throw it up here on the, in the corner if you missed it. Perfect candidate for Alabama to hire an offensive coordinator. Not the most popular name. But I think he'd be a grand slam, and that's Dan Mullen. Because that guy is elite X's and O's. What is he lacking in? Recruiting. Attention to detail in program building. Well, he'd be walking through the door of the greatest college football coach of all time. He doesn't have to worry about the recruiting. We got an army of recruiters at Alabama. These coordinators, they're not here at Alabama to recruit. They're here to for X's and O's and to coach the coaching staff, Dan Mullen, you arm him with the talent they have at Alabama. They would be national champions in a hurry with Nick Saban, of course, running the defense of side of the ball. Dan Mullen develops quarterbacks. He's led four to become Heisman finalists. He gets them ready for the NFL. Several of his quarterbacks have gone on to the NFL. I'm just saying, Dan Mullen would be the perfect fit and I've said before, I don't think Dan Mullen very interested in an assistant coaching job, but working for Nick Saban is a little bit different. Hell, the guy pulls NFL head coaches to be his coordinators and assistants. Working for Nick Saban is not like working for anybody else. Again, you're working with the greatest of all time. You win a national championship or two at Alabama. Dan Mullen could get any job he wants. And that would be a hell of a lot better way to do it than sitting in an ESPN coaching booth. But again, he's making a, a hell of a lot of money sit up there talking college football. And I think he does a good job doing that as well. So maybe he has no interest. I know Jeff Lebby, that's another name that 
we've talked about here and others have said he seems to be a prime candidate to where they want to be running the similar system as Ole Miss, Tennessee, what they were doing at Arkansas. They're changing it up now, of course, but very popular Art Browse style offense. Uh, Jeff Lebby is at Oklahoma. He's a graduate of Oklahoma. Was He's just been there one year. So we'll see if they can pull Jeff Lebby away from Oklahoma. One other name that uh, I've not heard you know, any credible sources or anything, but it's bubbling up Joe Brady, popular choice down there at Alabama. And anytime I talk Joe Brady with people, they say the same thing. He's, he's not interested in coming back to college. Now, again, maybe that changes because it's Nick Saban because it's Alabama. They are basically an NFL-style program. But that, would, to me, would seem like a long shot. Joe Brady, you know, just a couple of years ago, he was interviewing to be an NFL head coach. Now I believe he's a quarterback's coach with the Buffalo Bills. He's had a, a little bit of a fall there after uh, being Carolina offensive coordinator a couple of years ago. But I don't know, Joe Brady, hmm, I don't know. I mean, it, it would potentially be a good move, but if he does well, I mean, I think he's leaving right for the NFL after a year or two. So we're, we're right back where we started from. So I don't know. I just, I just don't see Joe Brady being that guy, but, uh, Heck, I've been wrong before, and I'll be wrong many more times to go. Tennessee, real quick, they announced on Tuesday contract extension for Josh Heupel. Remember, we threw out the uh, figures of, of how much these coaches are making after Shane Beamer got his extension up to $6.5 million. And there at the bottom of the list, Josh Heupel, $5 million, which was, I think, only above two coaches in the SEC. Now he's bumped all the way up to $9 million annually got a contract extension through January 2029 so through the 2028 season uh, this comes from their SID out there does a good job Bill Martin head coaches in Tennessee football history with an 11 win season Josh Heupel's one of them Philip Fulmer's another Johnny Majors Bill Battle and General Nealon those are the only five coaches in Tennessee history to win 11 games in a season, only Josh Heupel and Bill Battle managed to do that in their first or second seasons running the program. So putting some historical context into what Josh Heupel is doing up there on Rocky Top, $9 million, that's a lot of money. But I never thought I'd say this, but that's essentially the going rate for a top-level head coach, at least in the SEC. You want to be... One of the top dogs, you're going to have to pay your guy $9, $10 million. These salaries are not going down any time, so it's not surprising. I mean, he just got an extension less than a year ago to pump bump him up to $5 million. Huge season. Now he's up to nine. The only head coaches in the SEC making more than Josh Heupel next season. Nick Saban, of course, he's the top of the list. Kirby Smart, just below Nick. And then Brian Kelly and Jimbo Fisher each at nine and a half million dollars Lane Kiffin Josh Heupel both making nine million dollars we've got a lot of nine million dollar men in the SEC I'll tell you that all right one final thing before we get to our interview with uh, Gerard Hamilton want to break down these SEC schedules real quick Uh, I don't want to go over the whole things here I'll throw them up on the screen if you're watching on YouTube but one 
observation for each and every SEC schedule next season. Let's just go in alphabetical order here, starting with Alabama. Pretty unique schedule because they're hosting Texas. It's a return game from obviously last season going to Austin. But then the next week going to South Florida. Yes, you heard that correctly. To South Florida, Alabama will be hosted by South Florida. And that's, I mean, this may be the only time in history Alabama goes to South Florida. I just thought that was pretty interesting. But right after that, seven consecutive SEC games for Alabama. Ole Miss at home, at Mississippi State, at A&M. Arkansas and Tennessee at home, you get two weeks to prepare, and then LSU at home and at Kentucky. So you'll probably be favored in all those games. I'm not saying you know that's necessarily a murderer's row for a program of Alabama's caliber, but it's just interesting, seven consecutive SEC games. Towards the tail end of that, i got to imagine Alabama might be a little bruised, a little battered, so maybe some upset potential there at the back half of that schedule how about Arkansas a little bit lighter of a schedule than normal I guess Razorback fans are not used to hearing that but they did get kind of a screw job in part you know the SEC makes these schedules of course but also because they got played this damn game in Jerry World really screwed them over one SEC home game for the Razorbacks before November 11th One SEC home game, and that's Mississippi State on October 21st. The next uh, SEC home game will be November 11th against Auburn. But, I mean, that's just incredible. That's the most recent evidence that we got to do away with this Jerry World game because uh, we can't go two months of the season without having an SEC home game. And that is, of course, because in the middle of the year they got to go play Texas A&M and Arlington. This is just It makes it very unbalanced. And how about this uh, right in the middle of the schedule? This may be the toughest four-game slate of any SEC team next season. At LSU versus Texas A&M, again, in Arlington. At Ole Miss, at Alabama. Four games in a row, SEC games, none at home. One on a neutral field that's in the state of the team you're facing. That's that's brutal. But I would say the first four games, very winnable. The last four, very winnable. So it's not a complete screw job that we're used to there <laughs> at Arkansas. How about Auburn? Woo. Hugh, I think you're paying a price here. Just kidding. These schedules come out before Hugh was the coach. But look how Auburn opens their SEC schedule at A&M. Georgia at home, at LSU, Ole Miss at home, Mississippi State at home. <laughs> Auburn may be underdog in all those games. Now, I'm not sitting here saying they're going to lose them all because I think they'll be much improved from where they were a, a year ago. But, man, there's not a damn break in there. I mean, back in the day, you could consider the Mississippi schools the likely wins, but you, you sure as hell can't do that anymore these days. So, Rough, rough opening to Hugh Freeze's SEC career at Auburn. Of course, he's no stranger to that being down there at Ole Miss for years. Florida. Mm. I hate to do this to you. 
going to have a Florida guest on the next episode. I think I'm going to have to ask him about this. But I'm giving Florida the toughest schedule in the SEC next season. And a lot of it has to do with the fact, said this many times over, only three SEC home games next season. And that is, of course, because you got to play Georgia in Jacksonville. But uh, your only SEC home games, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas. So, you know, winnable games, no doubt. I mean, you'll probably be favored in, in just about all those, maybe not the Tennessee game, but history says the Gators got a good chance of beating Tennessee. But uh, what really puts this schedule over the top for me, the bookends, they open the season at Utah, respected team. I believe they won the Pac-12 three years in a row now. And, of course, that was a neck-and-neck game to open last season that the Gators won. And then finishing against Florida State, which everyone seems to be so hyped on, preseason top 10. I'm sure they'll blow it, but they'll probably be top 25 by the season uh, ending. So, again, very difficult non-conference, lacking a lot of home games, particularly in the SEC slate, makes Florida's schedule, I think, the toughest of all the SEC teams next season. Billy Napier has better get some of those freshmen going early because, uh, man, they're going to have to play if Florida's going to have a winning record next season. Georgia. (laughs) I made this point during the national championship game, and so many people jumped on it since that time. Hell, this is probably the easiest schedule in the SEC. And, it, I mean, it's kind of hard – not to suggest that. And because Florida's only got three SEC home games, Georgia's only got three SEC away games. And Georgia's away games at Auburn, which is during a rebuild, at Vanderbilt, which every time Georgia plays at Vanderbilt, it is a home game for Georgia. And at Tennessee, who they've not beaten Kirby Smart since his first year there. So, again, not a very tough schedule. I get that uh, the SEC made you – Drop that Oklahoma game that would have really added to this schedule, made it a little bit more competitive. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is far and away. Nor- normally you can look at – there's no such thing as an easy SEC schedule. But when you're dominant like Georgia, dominant like Alabama, a lot of times these schedules look easy because every, every opponent you say, oh, they're going to be favored here, here, every, damn every game, which they will be. But sometimes these games are a little bit trickier when they arrive than they are on paper. And the perfect example, November 11th, you are getting Ole Miss at home, but it's before Tennessee, a little bit of a trap game. And I think Ole Miss has the potential to be really good next season. So we may be underrating that a little bit. But the other SEC East contenders, potential contenders, South Carolina, Kentucky, Missouri, you're getting them all at home. So unless somehow you've, figure out to lose the home to one of those, you're going to be playing Tennessee or Florida late in the season for the SEC East title. Kentucky. (laughs) We're established now, Kentucky. We can drop Ball State, Eastern Kentucky, and Akron. That's who you open with. We, We got to start spicing this up a little bit. But, hey, Kentucky should be 5-0. and Heading into the trip at Georgia to, to be, you know, a game that maybe this is the year they finally beat Georgia. Maybe Georgia's looking past them. But aside from those cupcakes, they go at Vanderbilt and they host Florida, who they've kind of owned in recent years, Kentucky has. 
You should be 5-0. and against, I'll say it again. Ball State at home. Eastern Kentucky and Akron all at home. At Vanderbilt, which again does not even have a home field advantage. Florida at home before going to Georgia. This schedule, at least the front half of it, sets up outstanding for another miracle-type run on the bluegrass up there. How about LSU? Three of your first four SEC games are on the road. At Mississippi State, you get Arkansas at home, but then it's at Ole Miss, at Missouri. Now, you'll probably be favored in all of those, so I'm not sitting here suggesting you're going to you know, have a terrible start to the season, but, man, going on the road in the SEC is very, very tricky, particularly, I'm not saying they, it will happen, but particularly if you if you drop the opener to Florida State, of course, that didn't slow them down last year either, so maybe I'm I'm just kind of spitballing here. But, you know, if you struggle early and then you got all these three of the first four conference games on the road, you're probably going to trip up in one of them, if not two, which makes things really dicey with the back half. Look at their final month of the season. Maybe the most tricky final month of the season of any SEC team at Alabama. It's going to be tough. Florida, Georgia State which is a tricky team. They're very experienced. They've beaten SEC teams. And Texas A&M at home. LSU, all this hype. Schedule. The schedule says otherwise, though. Ole Miss mentioned this with uh, Michael Katz the other day. At Tulane, week two of the season in New Orleans. Now, I anticipate the crowd will probably be about 50-50, if not even more, in favor of Ole Miss. It's so close to New Orleans. But – that's tricky. Hell, they just won, what was it, the Cotton Bowl over Southern Cal. As, and they got many, many pieces coming back. This, this is going to be Tulane's Super Bowl. So this is a real opportunity for Lane Kiffin and company to trip up. He's got to have his guys. That, you know, he overturns the roster like nobody's business. He better have them ready to play by week two. Uh, other thing, similar to Alabama, seven consecutive SEC games. Once the schedule gets going here in conference play at Alabama, LSU, Arkansas, at Auburn, Vanderbilt, A&M, at Georgia. Good God. Ooh. Maybe uh, forget that I said they could upset Georgia <laughs> on the back of the very last game of seven consecutive SEC games. I don't know if Ole Miss will still be fielding a complete team by that point in time. How about Mississippi State? This you could not – again, there's no easy schedule in the SEC, but Zach Arnett could not have asked for a more forgiving start to his Mississippi State head coaching career. Southeastern Louisiana, I didn't even know that was a school. Arizona at home, which you beat last year, you handled them. LSU at home, tricky, but, you know, it gives you a fighting chance with them cowbells. At South Carolina, that is a very tough place to play. Alabama at home, Western Michigan at home. So, whew, I mean, these are not easy games. I'm not making that case. But the home field advantage, if you can get that ball rolling, if you can upset an LSU, a South Carolina, God forbid, Mississippi, Alabama, you finally snap that streak. Not saying it's going to happen, but it sets up well for a really fast start for Zach Arnett in his first season as your head coach at Mississippi State. Now, how about Missouri? 
I think outside of Georgia, this is probably the easiest schedule in the SEC. If Eli and company don't get it done here, I don't know if they ever will. Listen to their first six games. South Dakota at home, Middle Tennessee at home, Kansas State, which is a good team, but it's a home this year. Memphis, they're playing it in St. Louis, which is technically a home game. At Vanderbilt, doesn't have a home field advantage. And LSU at home. Now, LSU, of course, that'll be tricky, but, man, there's there's nothing standing in the way of 5-1, and one, God forbid, 6-0. and oh, If you find some way to beat LSU, take care of Kansas State at home. Missouri, I mean, this could be the year. If not, not going to be many excuses. So something to consider. Missouri's got a really, really favorable open to the season. Of course, I think the last time I said that, and I, I predicted Missouri to, I think maybe even win the East, was uh, Barry Odom's final. They, they fired his ass because they <laughs> lost to Wyoming week one. So take that for what it's worth. South Carolina, September's tricky. You open against North Carolina in Charlotte. They've got this incredible quarterback, supposedly. I haven't really watched him, but they're saying him and Caleb Williams will be battling it out all year for you know, first overall pick in the next draft. Furman, it's a pick-your-score type game. But then at Georgia, Mississippi State at home, and at Tennessee. And why, I mean, hell, two of the top five, six teams in the country, I just referenced Tennessee and Georgia, as if that's not tough enough. I think if I'm a Gamecock fan, not that there's a lot that you can criticize Shane Beamer for, but one thing that has been somewhat of an issue is starting the season slow. And maybe his first year with all the transition, Luke Doty got hurt. That's totally forgivable. I get it. But uh, this past season was also very slow. You cannot start slow with this (laughs) – North Carolina right out the gate. I mean, that North Carolina has tripped up South Carolina time and time again outside of uh, that their most recent appearance in the bowl game. So that's tricky at Georgia, at Tennessee, because the back half, your final seven, I mean, every game is winnable. So if you could go three and two, four and one, hopefully five and oh, if you're a Gamecock fan. I mean, the, the back half, you're going to be favored in, in damn near every game. The toughest ones, Florida, you get them at home. Clemson, you get them at home. Kentucky, you get them at home. At A&M, it's tricky. At Missouri, which beats you. But, you know, you've got, you've got enough talent to, beat the, to play with those teams and to beat them. Tennessee schedule, I like this one for the Vols. It sets up pretty well, I think. It, you know, on paper, you only leave the state a couple of times here at Florida at Alabama, at Kentucky, and at Missouri. Many of those winnable games. But what I really like about Tennessee's schedule, you get Austin P before Florida, so it's basically a bye. You get a bye before Texas A&M and Alabama, a real bye. And then you get UConn, which is technically – which is essentially another bye <laughs> right before the final three-game stretch of at Missouri, Georgia, and Vanderbilt. So the way it's lined up, at least, Tennessee, you know, this could be the makings of a championship-type schedule at Florida, at Alabama, Georgia at home will define that, I would think. But 
Hey, a very favorable slate. I have to think if I'm Josh Heupel and company preparing for year three on Rocky Top. Texas A&M, tricky. Week two at Miami. Good news for the Yankees, though. They don't got fans down there. They don't have a whole field advantage to my knowledge. So it's more just going on the road, facing a team that's very talented, but uh, obviously have not gotten it done on the field. So I don't have a ton of faith in Miami competing with Texas A&M, but you just never know going on the road so far away from College Station. Uh, First three SEC games, none on the road, at least in a true road environment. You got Auburn at home. You got Arkansas and Arlington and Alabama at home. So, man, you want to talk about doing a 180 and flipping the script, making a run at the SEC championship. This is how you do it. You beat Auburn, which will be favored. You got incredible home field advantage. Take care of Arkansas, which you do, what, nine out of ten years or something crazy like that. Alabama, of course, is the big one. But you you want to have that momentum rolling into that game. And if you do – the unthinkable beat Alabama, which it seems like A&M plays Alabama as well as anybody in the country. All of a sudden, A&M's looking like a top 10 team, a contender for the college football playoff. All right, last but not least, Vanderbilt. Interesting schedule here. They play Hawaii week zero once again. So what's that mean? They get two bye weeks. The weird thing with Vanderbilt, though, they saved them. For the final month of the season. So they they do go a little bit of a gauntlet here. Four SEC games. Kentucky, Missouri, at Florida, Georgia. This would be a hell of a home slate if they had some fans up there. Then they get a bye. Then they face at Ole Miss, Auburn, at South Carolina. And then they get a bye and they go to Tennessee. So you'll have two weeks to prepare for Tennessee in a game that will be your Super Bowl. In a game where Tennessee will be coming off a Georgia game. We'll be overlooking you. Clark Lee has yet to beat Tennessee. I don't know if he ever will, but he may never have a better shot than he does this upcoming season with two weeks to prepare with a a limping in Tennessee team potentially coming off a tough loss at home or maybe a sky-high win. I don't know. But just something to think about there uh, as we look ahead to next season's schedule. But all right, hey, I'm about to pass out talking to myself here. So let's kick it over to our interview, Gerard Hamilton. Really good stuff from Power Mizzou. I think you guys will really appreciate this one. All right, we're pleased to be joined by Gerard Hamilton. First time on the show. He covers Mizzou, of course, for Power Mizzou. You can give him a follow at Gerard C. Hamilton. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Gerard, thank you for joining me, man. I appreciate you for having me. So, hey, I got to ask, because this is one thing that I get asked time and time again when it comes with the Missouri. What happened? What can you share? What can you know about uh, Dominique Lovett? Because, man, he was so good this year, really breakout candidate. One of the, you know, if, if you don't follow Missouri closely, I don't think you realize how good of a player he is. Certainly, Kirby Smart in Georgia knew how good he is. He's He's yeah. now a bulldog, but... Can you share any uh, information on, on why he made that move to to leave Missouri? I mean, there isn't, I guess, too much that I could just say that 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 I know that, you know, the, that I'm not asking as well. I mean, it could be a number of things. I mean, like you said, he was one of the better receivers. I had this was having this conversation uh, with my girlfriend the other day as far as the transfer portal and how things work and 
you know, why certain people from lower programs would want to move up and how kind of the guys at the top level, there's only so much room at the top that you got to kind of go down. But, you know, Missouri still an SEC program. And I guess if you're going to a, the reigning national champions in a way, it's kind of moving up. We cannot just off of, you know, football play alone. That's what it is. So it could have been, you know, maybe he just he liked that offense better. Maybe he didn't get along with his roommate in college. Maybe there could have been something with Drake. Maybe he didn't like the direction some things were going in. Maybe he didn't like the quarter. It's a number of things. Um, but like you said, he's one of the the better, you know, transfer guys in the transfer portal uh, that you'll see this year. All SEC guy, uh, 56 receptions. It was maybe 856, 876. It's one of those yards and, and three touchdowns. I mean, he can get it done. So there's not necessarily something where it's just like it was this or that. It could be a number of things that that I don't know personally, but I mean he, he's gone. He's gone now, and, and Missouri's moved on, and he's going to move on with, with Georgia. Well, here's something that uh, I know you guys broke. I, I believe you broke the news at Power Mizzou that um, Brady Cook, what was it, uh, torn labrum or something? He, he had an injury issue early in the season, and um, I was just listening the other day to kind of uh, you, you did a uh, like a season recap and it was interesting because I don't think you guys had found out the news at that point but you noted that uh, you know we the plan was to be aggressive and then we got a couple games into the season and the offense went conservative again with Brady Cook so I, I gotta ask do you think that's you know obviously has something to do with the injury wouldn't you say yeah I think I think Brady got a lot of flack throughout the season. I mean, he struggled really, you know, to start the season. But after that bye week, you know, um, you know, facing Vandy, even though that game wasn't that great, that was a closer game than it needed to be. Um, from that point on, he played better. And some people disagreed with me on this, but I think um, from the Tennessee game, so I think that's week 11, or uh, something around that time, game 11, week 11, something like that, that New Mexico State, Arkansas, he was the best offensive player in all three games. I mean, I don't – for as much as you want to say, on the beginning of the season, you know, he's the reason they were 2-4 and four at one point. He's also part of the reason why they got to 6-6 six and six and was uh, bowl eligible. I do think that uh, torn labrum and his right throwing arm uh, versus Kansas – or against Kansas State was something that kind of hampered him in a way. Um, I don't know if that's the full reason as to why it seemed they got conservative. In, in my estimation – I mean, there's a number of reasons. A lot of it is they were shooting themselves in the foot early. A lot of it was him making bad decisions. Um, the offensive line play wasn't great. I mean, I can't remember the necess the quarter necessarily in the Kansas State game, but there was a moment where he threw a pass and you could just see his arm dangling. And you knew something was that like, but he didn't come about the game or nothing like that. So you just, all right, maybe just took a good shot. But you can see it from there. So I assume, you know, there's a number of factors that went into, you know, why they went a little bit more conservative the rest of the way. Mm. And it's it's pretty interesting, Gerard, how, I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago we're sitting here saying, well, I guess it'll be Brady Cook and Sam Horn battling it out. Now Cook is out for the spring, so now this could be Horn's time to, to kind of seize the moment. But, of course, he plays baseball. And now they've added Jake Garcia, which is we, we throw that element into it. All of a sudden – you know, there's some very talented players in that quarterback room, and, and you got to love those options if you're a Missouri fan. And uh, I don't 
I should know this, but you would know better than I. They just signed a four-star Jabari Johnson, you know, throw him into the mix when he gets there as well. But all of a sudden, uh, could the quarterback room, could that be a strength of Missouri's program moving forward? Well, that's to be determined. Obviously, we just got to see on the field. There's what's going to be different about this uh, QB competition compared to last year in, in fall camp is Brady Cook, I'm going to say maybe seven, eight days into camp, like a week into camp, he was named the starter. I mean, right when he got named the starter, I don't know if I had even moved to Missouri yet to cover the team. <laughs> like, it was very quick. So um, that was kind of like Drink must just must have known. They must have, Mizzou must have known that he was the guy. And I don't know if it was – he was so far ahead and above or maybe they, didn't, they wasn't thinking the other quarterbacks were ready. I don't know what it was. But this competition, everybody is much – it's more of a tight-knit group as far as just like – why could this guy go and why could this guy go? So if you don't mind, I'll kind of break it down for you real quickly. You know, uh, you know, spring football and then maybe, maybe a little bit of fall camp. So spring football, Brady's obviously out for the spring. Jabari is going to finish up his high school, uh, his senior year in high school in, in the Tacoma area in Washington. So he won't be there. So it's going to be uh, Garcia and it's going to be Horn mostly. That's going to be the two guys that you're looking at. And then when Brady comes in the fall, it should be a three-man race. Uh, Jabari, he's a four-star prospect. He, he can move. He has a strong arm. Uh, I think one of his best traits is when when he's looking to throw, he doesn't, you know, look at one spot, his one read, and then just run off. You know, he keeps his eyes downfield, even though he will make a play. But to ask a freshman quarterback to come in and play in the SEC, I mean, that's a very tall task to do. So I, I just can't figure him into this competition. But in the spring, it's going to be Sam Horn where – the, the case for him may be he's the guy that everybody's been in on for a couple of years here in Missouri. Like, that's the guy. I mean, he throws 95 miles per hour as a baseball player. And, and for everybody, his football priorities do come first. So he's going to be doing the spring football thing. That's top priority. I mean, he but he, he has the size. He has the arm, the athletic. He's probably the most athletic of all the quarterbacks I named in that group. Garcia, he has the experience, came from Miami, had some playing time. I mean, he can make all the throws this offense needs them to do and Kirby Moore's new kind of spread offense-like thing. Um, his biggest thing is just decision-making, like a lot of young quarterbacks. He had – there were some times where he had some some bad, you know, throws, interceptions. If you look at that Duke game, he had three of them. And while his touchdowns look good, his interceptions look pretty bad. And and, and that's similar to Brady Cook. Brady Cook, his, his thing is – or go back to Garcia, when you're bringing in a transfer, they're expecting to play. There's going to be some type of role for them in office, defense, whatever they do. So he wouldn't have come along and drinking the guys wouldn't have got him if they didn't think he has a chance to be a starter and earn that spot. And then when you go to Brady Cook, he has the experience, full SEC year under his belt. He has the rapport with the guys in the locker room as being their, their starting guy. And then he showed towards the end of the season that, you know, he can help them. He he's not he's not a liability like everybody says. And now that we know about the injury, well, could that have been help holding him back? This team could have easily won eight, possibly nine games with, you know, the poor offensive line play, with how he played, with a lot of the turnovers and mistakes. So it's not just ah he did this and it, it's all bad. Like there's good and bad. So when he comes in, uh, comes in in fall camp or whenever he's ready, it's going to be a three man race. Yeah, so having said all that, Gerard, I mean, I can only imagine how busy you're going to be over at Power Mizzou on the message board every practice. Who's a, who's a lead? Who's QB1? So we probably won't get an answer till deep into fall camp. But one thing you hit on there that is, that is a, a new variable, Kirby Moore, offensive coordinator. I, I think 
uh, when they made that hire, um, you know, he was not someone that I knew about, but on my research, I mean, this on the face of it is a very, very good hire. And uh, I think Drinkowitz had to make this hire. I love the fact that uh, he kind of admitted that. And, and I think he was holding the program back a little bit. Uh, what's your thoughts on, on Kirby Moore, that hire? And uh, have, you, have you learned any interesting uh, information on him since his hire? Um, I wrote a little, a little, a couple things about Kirby. And so the biggest thing was, it was great that drink was being transparent with himself, program fans, all that good stuff. Just as far as saying, you know, basically there's so much more to being a head coach than X's and O's and watching film. There's, you know, all these other meetings outside of that and the responsibilities of being a head coach of a, of not, uh, you know, a college football program, especially in the sec. And he just got, he got his hands full. So it was, it was good that he could finally come to that realization. The team needs that. And it was shown when Bush Hamden was um, calling those plays for those three weeks that I said, Brady Cook look, looked really good in um, towards the end of the season, the offense got better and things like that. So um, that's one Kirby Moore again, like, like you, I didn't really, I never heard of him before then uh, I started doing my research. Um, he obviously his brother Kellen is is the Dallas uh, Cowboys offensive coordinator. Um, so he comes from that. He played at Boise State as a wide receiver, but he, he spent time in Fresno State the last six or so seasons, past game coordinator, wide receivers coach before this last year being the quarterback coach and offensive coordinator, which he'll be at Mizzou. So his spread offense is it's similar to what drinking them run. It's not going to be a total overhaul. Quick passes, quick screens. Um, you may see more inside zone when it comes to running as opposed to, you know, long stretch outside plays. Uh, but this it, offense is designed to get playmakers in space, you know, crossing routes, slants, all that good stuff. And that's where you want the ball. Luther, Luther Burden, touchdown Luther for a reason. You know, I believe he had eight touchdowns. And then, you know, they got some of these other, you know, Theo, he's coming in from Oklahoma. Dennis Jackson come from Ole Miss. Guys with some speed uh, on, on along with the guys they already got, Mookie Cooper and all that good stuff. So, that's what they want to do. I mean, as far as just telling you too much more, um, I don't know. He just I just noticed at the press conference that he looked calm. He did. He just he just looked like, here's what I'm going to do. Um, we're going to get these people involved and, you know, we'll 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 get to that part. We'll get to the football part whenever it comes. But he didn't. He just seemed cool. That's all I can say. Like, you just seemed calm about, you know, the press conference and, and what his, his responsibilities are and. He'll be the lead play caller going forward, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, let me ask you this. What was the biggest surprise to you? Um, I, I know you didn't cover the team two years ago, but, I mean, the defense was just god-awful. In comes Blake Baker, who who had to replace Steve Wilkes, who left right after, I think it was National Signing Day, so it was kind of unusual timing. And, and Blake Baker, I believe, was a safeties coach, and they just promoted him. And I didn't think he did that good job at Miami of course, I don't really, I don't follow Miami, but just looking at the numbers, they they regressed each year. I mean, the defense was incredible. Uh, that certainly the strongest part of the football team. And uh, you know, if the de like you said, if the offense was as good as the defense, I mean, this is a nine ten win team. So what surprised you more? The fact that the defense was so good, or maybe even better yet, guys like Enos Rakestraw, Chris Abramstrain, Tyron Hopper, Darius Robinson, all these guys coming back. When I don't know how high their stock would have been in the NFL, but I believe all those guys would have got drafted. Uh, was it a bigger surprise that uh, so many big time defenders are back from Missouri? It is. 
because you think about the Arkansas game. I mean, there's probably seven or eight of those guys that I'm thinking are declaring. I mean, now, does that mean none of them would have came back? No. But when you think you like, you got seven or eight guys who just may declare at the least, that's a, that's a number of guys in, who actually have legitimate cases as to why they would. Does that mean all of them get drafted? But do two or three of them get drafted at the least? Yeah. And so when you get your basically your whole secondary back, both starting safeties, uh, you know, on the back end and Carlisle and Charleston, and then you get um, Ray Strong, KAD, which that's one of the better cornerback tandems in the nation. I mean, they led the AC, uh, SEC in, in pass breakups um, with them being with KAD being one and, and Ray Strong being two. You get those guys and you lose Martez Manuel in that leadership. But Dalen Carnell, he's he's a playmaker. He already showed he's a ball hawk. He had two fumble recoveries, like three picks. I mean, he led the league in takeaway. I mean, he led uh, the team in takeaways himself. You know, it's just a rush freshman. So they've got pieces. I mean, the defensive line is kind of where it gets a little shaky, especially at defensive ends with McGuire and Coleman, because DJ Coleman, he really came on. Like, he really came on. It just seemed like a fumble, strip sack every game for a period of time, tackles for loss every game. But to have all those people back, I think that's more surprising than, I guess, what they did. Because once you could kind of tell that first game, like something just seems a little different about this defense. That switch to the 4-2-5 with the extra safety instead of the nickel corner, I just feel like it's not that these players really couldn't do it before, but it just felt like they were all in their right spots. I think it was more of a bigger surprise that you had so many transfers who made an impact. I don't know if you get so many transfers who immediately make a positive impact and have a consistent role in the in, in offense, defense, whatever you're talking about. So I think that was more of a surprise, just having all those guys contribute. Well, speaking of transfers, uh, which incoming transfer do you think makes the biggest impact for this Missouri football team? You mentioned Theo Weiss. When, when I went back last offseason and watched – uh, all the Spencer Rattler game that I could at Oklahoma, he jumped out as me as one of their best uh, receivers there at Oklahoma. Is he the answer, or is there someone else that you think would make the biggest impact for Missouri this year? Instantly off the top of my head, it's it's maybe a Marcellus Johnson, uh, the tackle they got from Eastern Michigan. Um, just because that offensive line, it, it, it just needs help. It, I mean, the number of penalties uh, that they've got, I mean – there's probably two or three times off the top of my head I can think of a penalty that caught, probably cost them points. I mean, the biggest one is probably versus Georgia when Schrader gets stopped at the one and then I think it's a false start or something like that, and now they're settling for a field goal. In your mind, you may think, I don't know if a touchdown necessarily puts the game out of reach. I mean, it's still Georgia, but that's a swing. That's a four-point swing if the PATs may and all that good stuff. Um, but Marcellus Johnson, I mean, 32 uh consecutive starts uh, at Eastern Michigan at left tackle with Javon Foster coming back. He maybe have to move to right tackle, but just having bookend tackles that you can trust. They don't have to be all world. They don't have to be all conference, but you can just trust them. That is something. Um, Theo Weiss, that's nothing to slide at. I mean, I think he was averaging maybe like 19 yards per reception or something last year. So that deep threat that Lovett provided, Theo can do that. He was a former five-star uh, I mean, Dennis Jackson, kind of another one of those fast, speedy guys that you that you can use, uh, kind of like how Mookie Cooper is. 
So there's a, there's a number of, of things. I mean, I just wrote a piece on on their new punter, Riley Williams, an Australian guy coming over from Townsend who was fourth in the FCS in punting. Um, I know that doesn't sound as great, but when you can when you think about punting, there were some inconsistencies throughout the season, and and for you in week three to have to make a punting change and still kind of see those inconsistencies, you know, that's not great. So to shore that up and maybe the offensive line and some other things. I think we're going to see in spring football maybe who could possibly be the best. We don't know right now, but those three are are good you know, players to start with. Well, congratulations to you, Gerard. I think it's the first time we've ever discussed a transfer punter on the show. But, hey, you're right, man. When first those guys, when they're not working, you notice it. You know what I mean? So uh, hopefully that's a big addition. You mentioned Luther Burden. I, I want to go back to him just real quick. Do you think that uh, in his second year he'll take a big leap forward now with, with Dominic Lovett gone? Uh, they're going to need some increased production. And, uh, you know, I thought – Maybe the coaches, they, they took some heat for not getting him the ball enough, but, man, it seemed like they were they were doing everything they could with putting him on punt return and, and rushing him and, and doing all kinds of things. Maybe he didn't get enough touches, but when he did, my God, he's just like a, a highlight reel waiting to happen. You know what? Yeah, I think with Dominic out of the picture, this gives Luther the opportunity to move into the slot. And so – they had I remember when I first came here, the like one of the jokes I made was like, they just have so many slot guys. They've got him. They got Barry Bannister, got Makai, Makai Miller. They got Dominic Love. There's so many guys that you can, you know, plug into that spot. And so with Dominic gone, you can move him there. You can move Theo Weiss, you know, to, to that X receiver spot if you want to or, or whatever you, you want to do. But I think the first half of the season was just understanding the game. I mean, we saw a number of times where Luther would get hit and, and it's a di different type of hits, you know, or maybe he, he turns something. We don't know, but I think it was just adjusting to the game. Second half of the season, I want to say, you know, after that Florida game, you know, you started seeing him kind of absorbing those things, kind of seeing things different, learning the game. And because he's a five-star, you know, he can probably be one of those few players where you, you don't mind starting him, you know, early on in his career and things like that, where most people, even if they're really high four stars, you still think, let's, you know, maybe redshirt them, let them learn the game and stuff like that. So when he moves to the slot where he's probably where he's got all the extra space, where his shiftiness and elusiveness and his field vision can come to play. I do think he he can, you know, produce more. I mean, because he's not the fastest in the world. But the way he sees the field and his elusiveness, that's why he was he became the punt returner for that reason. So I think you it's reasonable to expect more uh, this upcoming season. All right. Final thing, Gerard, I, I swear I'm not trying to get you in trouble with the fine folks over there at Power Mizzou or anything. But you kind of reference it. Like I said, I uh, when I went back and listened to your season review podcast, Eli Drinkwitz, not asking if he's on the hot seat, but. Is he kind of on the hot seat going into uh, year four here? Something like that, you would guess. I mean, he did get the extension uh, the morning of the Week 10 game versus versus Kentucky. So uh, Gabe will tell you how fun that was. <laughs> that. But, um, I mean, things have to, to change in that. And you can see he knows that, obviously. I mean, when you go 503 consecutive seasons in the regular season, of course, and then you lose two bowl games – there's got to be something, something where you can where you can point to and be like, that looks like we're going up. And some things are, he said it all season, you know, progress isn't linear. And, and that's true to a degree. 
But then at some point, you know, whoever it is, they're going to say, but, you know, five and five, six and six, six and six, two bowl losses. Like we've got to see something at least on that way that looks like, you know, progress. And so he, he knows that that's why he brought in Kirby Moore to handle some of those duties, to take some of that pressure off. That's why I brought in uh, Garcia from, from Miami. Uh, everybody's wondering, are they going to bring in a quarterback? Are they going to do this? Are they going to do that? He's starting to do that and put the things together and, you know, show that he's willing to put the, put the chips in the, in the middle of the table and say, all right, we're going to do whatever we can to improve, you know, this program. And it's not that he hasn't been in the past, but he kind of understand maybe the seats is getting warmer or whatever it may be. I don't know. I'm just saying from my point of view, that's what it looks like. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're trying to be better. They're trying to get to that seven and five, eight and four, because um, again, how many times was it almost Missouri almost won that game versus Georgia and almost won versus Auburn almost versus Kentucky. Those almost have to turn into wins. And he knows that and everybody else knows that. Any idea why why did they give him that contract extension? I mean, it, not not that he's a bad coach, but I'm just I feel like you give an extension when someone's going to leave for another job or so. And I I didn't see that. I mean, it just it it just didn't make a ton of sense. But I, I think it, from my understanding, again, you know much better than I would. I think it it allowed him more money for assistance. So maybe that's how they, you know, in part got Kirby more maybe to help recruiting. Um, can you can you provide any insight on that? I think it's you said two of them. I think it's uh, for for recruiting. I mean, to be able to tell whoever you're trying to get to come here, I'm going to be here for four years at least. You, I'm recruiting you. You know, we've got this rapport. I'm going to be here. That that's good. Um, then, as far as the the extra money he got in, I don't know how necessarily that works or as far as that part. But yeah, does that help? You know, okay. He said midseason he didn't mind bringing an offensive coordinator. That's not something we just found out when he hired Kirby earlier this month. He said he'd be open to that. So that was included, you know, the money for the extra assistance. So that's where it went to. But, I mean, I just think it's really those two, being able to recruit, saying I'm going to be here for four years, and then, uh, you know, getting that extra money to bring in the offensive coordinator to see, you know, to get a helping hand or whatever it may be. All right, Gerard, I really, really appreciate all your time. Before you go, can you tell the audience where to find all your work? Yeah, for one, follow me on Twitter, Gerard C. Hamilton. Um, you can find me at powermazoo.com. Got stuff going. Feels like every day. Um, like I said, I just dropped a, a feature on, on Riley Williams, the new your guys' newest punter, um, coming from by way of Australia, from, from the farms of Australia. <laughs> to Australian rules football now to or to then to Townsend now is the SEC punter but uh yes powermazoo.com uh, that's where you guys can find me all right so just want to say thanks again Gerard for joining the show first time on the show gonna have to have him back in the future uh it's always nice to go around the league and I hope you guys appreciate this view into the Missouri program we've already got interviews lined up with a Florida insider, a Tennessee insider, and I'm just going to keep going all around the SEC for as long as I can, as long as you guys keep showing up. So I can't thank you enough for tuning into the show, but that's going to do it for this episode of the show. We'll catch you on the next one.
Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the pirate, and the pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.